This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. George Monbia shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Accounts of mass incarceration and the carceral state often begin amidst the law and order backlash of the 1960s, or perhaps farther back with convict leasing and other forms of controlling black workers in the South after the abolition of slavery. My guest today is Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She takes a different tack in her new book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. 1771 to 1965. From the moment the Spanish conquered Los Angeles, the city's ruling elite, Spanish, Mexican, and then Anglo-American, have used cages to dominate, exploit, and expel indigenous people, followed by white male tramps, left-wing cross-border revolutionaries, Mexican workers, and black migrants from the South. Vital Hernandez is a professor of history at UCLA. Another book she wrote, that I have in the to-read pile on my dining room table as we speak is Migra, a history of the U.S. Border Patrol. Real quick, before we get started, we're on track to make our goal of 700 supporters at patreon.com by year's end, but we can only do so with your help. So if you listen every week, keep meaning to donate, and yet have not done so, take a moment now at patreon.com slash the dig that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig also if you're a qualified patreon supporter and have not yet done so please call in a question or comment we love to hear from listeners okay thanks and here's the show Kelly Lytle Hernandez, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me on. You call Los Angeles the carceral capital of the world. Why does the city that you live in merit this unfortunate distinction? Well, there are a variety of reasons why I decided to look at Los Angeles as one of the key epicenters of mass incarceration, not just in the United States, but globally speaking. One, as you have indicated, Los Angeles operates the largest municipal jail system in the United States, and some research by the Vera Institute in particular suggests that Los Angeles operates the largest local jail system in the world. So from that standpoint, the system of human caging in Los Angeles is massive enough to merit a a deep dive into the local story of how incarceration grew so large in the city. However, I also look at Los Angeles as an epicenter because some of the communities that are most disparately impacted by mass incarceration have very large communities in Los Angeles, very large populations in L.A. So L.A. has the largest 
African-American population in the American West or certainly West Mississippi. Los Angeles has the largest urban Indian population in the United States. And Los Angeles has the largest Mexican population north of the U.S.-Mexico border. So if we want to talk about the many forms of human caging that range from immigrant detention to the criminal justice system, Los Angeles offers us a very good window into the full scope of incarceration. You just used the uh, term caging, and that's a, a word that you intentionally introduce at the beginning of your book. It's in the title, and it's um, used throughout. And it seems to me that what this term helps you do maybe is to highlight the connections and between and shared logics underlying things that might otherwise be considered distinct, like residential segregation, settler colonialism, immigration restriction, and then what we more traditionally think of as incarceration. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose that term, how you came to it, and what you see to be its conceptual utility? Right. Well, I think you're on the right track. And we could add to that list Native reservations and Japanese and Japanese-American internment during World War II. The list goes on and on and on. The issue with using a term like imprisonment is that legally speaking, it is quite narrowly framed. And for me to be able to bring the broader human experience with incarceration into a single book or a single story, I needed to find some language that had the capacity to talk about, yes, imprisonment, but also immigrant detention and a variety of other human caging projects. So really it was a challenge, historiographically and conceptually speaking, to find a term that would be large enough to think about the many forms of the carceral state. It also was simply listening to the ground, um, people who are organizing to end mass incarceration today, often use the term of human caging. Of course, many of the people at the forefront of the movement um, are formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated themselves and often speak to the experiences that they've had as one of being literally caged. And so it was a combination of both sort of the, the need for an academic rigor and a terminology that was truthful to the many um, forms of incarceration that I'm talking about in this book, but also listening carefully to the ground and the people who are leading a movement and who are most impacted by the system and some of the terminology that they've used for their own experiences. So it's really those two reasons are the driving causes behind my using the term human caging rather than mass incarceration in the title. I think it's a very powerful term in that it simultaneously has this sort of complex theoretical utility, but is also literal word you can use to describe putting someone in a cage. It's, it's just kind of unadorned and, and literal. Yeah, I think that we want to make sure that we push past the abstractions in this conversation we're having about mass incarceration and talk about what it is we are doing to other human beings. And that is putting people into cages. Now, those cages may be five by five. Those cages may be larger lockdowns. But yet the the similar or the shared thread from internment to detention to imprisonment are those wire fences, men in, in gun posts standing up high. So I think in many ways in that title, I wanted to strip back and lay bare the human experience of the carceral state. And that is by using the term human caging. There's a lot of history in your book, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about the specific periods that you write about. But before we get into that, your history has quite a sweeping scope from 1771 to 1965. 
why did you decide on on that period? And why does this sort of long arc allow you to tell stories that more restricted chronologies would not? Well, this is a good question about what is the long fetch of our contemporary moment of the age of mass incarceration? And when I first started out thinking about this book, the chart that I think a lot of us are familiar with about the staggering rise of um, rates of incarceration from about the late 1970s, early 1980s into the present was definitely at the forefront of my mind. But as a historian, I'm always interested in figuring out what the roots, what the foundation, what the origins of a major social, political, or economic shift is. So I knew from the beginning that I was going to want to look back to the prehistory of that boom. I just didn't know exactly how far it was going to take me, right? So I thought <laughs> it would take me back to the early 20th century. Pretty far, I, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, pretty far, it turns out. As I was working my way through the archive, and I think this is the tendency of most historians, um, it became more and more clear that there was another prehistory that I needed to tell and then another prehistory I needed to unveil to be understand, to understand um, the evolution of this system and how it had layered up over time to then explode in the late 20th century. Um, so by the time I was done with all that research, I had found myself in the Spanish colonial period in California with the foundation of this new city called Los Angeles as a city of conquest set upon Tongva land. And from that moment, I began to chronicle and track how incarceration, human caging, um, evolved as a social institution in that town between the moment of initial invasion and conquest up through the, certainly through the uprising of 1965 in South Central and Watts in particular, um, but the later parts of the book also bring the story right up into the contemporary moment with my own sort of writing in an epilogue, but also more important through the reflections and the work of organizers on the ground today. Well, let's circle back to the the beginning that you just mentioned. Um, you write about the Tongva, the in, people indigenous to California before the Spanish conquest and then Mexican and Anglo-American rule under a thread that ties together your analysis of these three regimes is that public order charges were a key tool to criminalize native people as a caste. Can you sketch out how policing and incarceration was, was used under those three regimes to dominate and exploit native people? Well, absolutely. And I think I would just want to add to that question that the line of analysis there is that criminalization and incarceration are used to extract labor from indigenous communities, but also to remove them from the land that they knew and cared for for thousands of years so that colonists could lay claim to that land and lay sovereignty over that land. So the story that I tell in this first chapter of City of Inmates is really the origin story of mass incarceration in Los Angeles. It talks about the first experiments with human caging in the city being in the Spanish mission system and the evolution of that into the Pueblo or the early town and city system during the Mexican and U.S. periods that the policing apparatus, the criminal law system revolved around a core issue of establishing colonial authority in the Tongva Basin. And one, several of the key mechanisms of doing that is in trying to pull a, like a magic maneuver in transforming Tongva peoples who knew every corner of these communities that they had 
come of age in for generations, to transform them into the so-called vagrants and hobos of this region. Uh, and that is done through a series of public order charges that when indigenous people were found um, without work or dislocated from the land, they would be um, arrested and charged as vagrants in their own homelands. So this is a political, political, social, and cultural maneuver to change um, sovereignty in the region. And so this is what I'm trying to add to this conversation about mass incarceration is that in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, carceral projects are about who has a right to be on this land and control life and society on this land. And that is a story that begins with the invasion of indigenous communities, certainly here in Los Angeles and in California. Just to hammer home, this is a very different origin story or starting point for the rise of mass incarceration, which we have learned so much about um, through what some people might call the plantation to prison arc, that after emancipation, African Americans were criminalized, locked up, and sold out as convict laborers throughout the Jim Crow era. After the explosions and the transformations of the civil rights era, there's an enormous blowback, backlash, and we have the rise of the new Jim Crow, the era of mass incarceration. Now, that's solid history. What I want to add to the conversation is there are origin stories as well with colonization and with the displacement and dislocation. And as we say in settler colonial theory, the elimination of indigenous communities and sovereignties. There are origin stories to the carceral state as there, um, there as well. You'll be happy to know that's how I describe your contribution in the intro to this interview already. <laughs> oh. <laughs> how does the story you tell about labor exploitation that was achieved through the caging of the Tongva in California relate to or complicate the story that we already know about the dispossession of Native people? Well, story that it's a story that too many don't already know, but but the more the story about the dispossession of land through measures like the Indian removal and Dawes acts, how does your discovery of the introduction of human caging relate to that? There's been quite a bit of work recently on the the long history of enslavement and labor exploitation in native and indigenous communities. And one of the more recent works, of course, is Andres Resendez's book, The Other Slavery. And that work is helping us to understand the dynamics of colonization, settler colonialism, can seek elimination and removal and displacement at the same time as extracting labor from indigenous communities. And that's very much a story that I tell in City of Inmates, that it's not an either or, is that these two dynamics can be functioning at once, that on route to elimination are um, reams and multiple experiences of labor exploitation. And the carceral system demonstrates that to us, I think, perfectly. So in Los Angeles, Tongva and Gabrielino and other indigenous communities that had been dislocated and displaced to this new city of conquest were widely criminalized as drunks and vagrants, policed and then locked up in a jail that was rife with communicable diseases. So the jail becomes a hot spot for indigenous um, population decline. At the same time that the men who are being locked up every Sunday night are being pulled out of the jail every Monday morning and tied to a wooden log and sold off to the highest bidding white employer. So these two things are happening simultaneously the elimination of indigenous community and the exploitation, labor exploitation of an indigenous community. And they're happening in the same place through the local jailing system. I want to turn to your next chapter, 
which is about white male tramps in Los Angeles. And I don't think there are too many books, probably no other books, that have the first chapter begin with in indigenous cosmology and the next with white hobos. But um, this is, it's an amazing book and, and you weave an incredible history together across so much time. But you, you dedicate this chapter to white male tramps because for a time in the late 19th, I think in early 20th century, they were the overwhelming target of incarceration in LA. Can you tell me who were these men and why were they being targeted for incarceration? There's a significant amount of literature on the so-called tramp era. One of my dissertation advisors, Eric Munkinen, has done a considerable amount of work in this area. Um, my colleague at UCLA, Toby Higby as well, has worked quite a bit in this area. And I was able to draw upon their research about the dislocation of poor white men from land and from labor, from work, during the rise of corporate capitalism after the Civil War through the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And these white men who did not have land and did not have work became the, the so-called walking poor and migrated across the Northeast and into the American West as seasonal workers. And during the winter months, many would go to cities to wait until work returned. Now, the thing that's so interesting to me about this era of massive numbers of poor white men being dislocated from land and from work is that as they're entering the American West, um, they constitute something akin to an internal racial threat, that the American West in the late 19th century is being claimed with the theory of manifest destiny. It is a region being claimed through wars of conquest and broken treaties and so on and so on in the name of white men who will come settle on native land, build heteronormative nuclear families and work in consistent ways. These white men enter the region without land, without women and without work. And they constitute a threat to the settler ideal of the American West, to the vision of manifest destiny in the American West. And it's through this that they become a social threat and a criminalized population that local authorities, certainly throughout the American West and in Los Angeles in particular, um, feel compelled to pull off of the streets of the city so that they don't threaten the fantasy of Los Angeles as a Eden of the Saxon home seeker, or as historian Kevin Starr has put it, as the Aryan city of the sun. So this has been a really interesting chapter or story to go around the country and talk about that I think for many readers it's been difficult to understand tramps, hobos, white men as a racial threat to white supremacy. Yeah. But by casting the story within settler colonial theory and the importance of not just a narrow understanding of race, but a very layered and intersectional understanding of it being gendered and having a, a sexual politics to it, a reproductive sexual politics as well. I think it's, by having this more robust understanding of how white supremacy functions in a white settler state, that we can come to a more clear-eyed look at the ways in which tramps and hobos constituted a form of a racial internal racial threat. I I couldn't agree more. I, I think this is a really important chapter because it shows that the fact that mass incarceration is a heavily racialized system does not mean then or now that ordinary white people necessarily benefit in any way from it, or more broadly, that ordinary white people really benefit from white supremacy as a whole. In the era that you're, era that you're writing about, white male tramps were targeted precisely because they deviated from and threatened white supremacist 
ideals. You got it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's it, it's um, and I, I I think the lessons for for how we analyze, let's say, the much pilloried and mocked and stereotyped figure of the of the white redneck Trump voter today, I think it's very instructive for for how we should be thinking. Might offer some useful answers to why the white people, let's say in West Virginia, might not feel like they benefit much, say from white privilege. And in fact, they are also racialized as as a as as deviant whites. Well, you know, it's so funny you told that story about West Virginia and rednecks and you know, rednecks, as far as we understand, um, come out of West Virginia and the mining move the miners movement. And they too were bombed by the United States government as they marched against mine owners and Pinkerton guards. Um, so it's really interesting. You take us back to the so-called redneck, uh, who actually has a pretty revolutionary history um, as, as workers, but also as a working group of miners who tried quite significantly to transcend the racial barrier to have a united front of workers against the mine owners. So, yes, I would agree <laughs> with everything you just said. And we have got to start um, pushing to the fore of our conversations the ways in which white supremacy undermines the well-being of white working people, um, queer folks, lots of different folks for whom um, white supremacy in its settler formation does not serve them. It's the same socioeconomic forces that have forced these men into transient temporary labor that gave rise to things like the mining rebellions in West Virginia and the populist movement more broadly. Is that is that right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I teach at UCLA, you know, I teach on all these issues of largely racial inequity through systems of incarceration, policing, and immigration control. Um, one of the sadder moments I always have is when white students will inevitably come down at the front of the lecture hall and say, um, either I, I feel so bad about this history or what I'm doing is something that denigrates them as white folks. And what I'm really hearing in these young white students is their profound lack of their own radical history and possibility. And it becomes an opportunity to talk with them about minor uprisings, the miners' uprisings, I should say, um, and the history that they can, they can choose to hold on to and move forward with in an anti-racist fashion and program. Um, but it's something they're going to have to choose. Right? <laughs> um, they can choose to opt into whiteness and to reify it at every turn. They can also choose to challenge it. And they, won't, they will be strengthened by choosing to learn the history of, of white radicals. Um, they will find that they have deep roots. Before we m- move on to your other chapters, I want to um, ask you about, to go into a little more detail on on one thing that will be important to understanding everything in the rest of our discussion, which is that, of course, the United States as a whole was conceived of as a white settler paradise. But this was true in a particularly intense sense for L.A. and California, which sort of stood in contrast to the polyglot eastern metropolises. And... It was an area that ironically also was right in the path of Mexican and Asian migration. Tell me about how it was that L.A. was thought to be what this one author that you mentioned earlier called an Aryan city of the sun. This is a good question. So, again, Los Angeles, at first a town and then a city and then the leading city of a particular region of the country known as the American West. And that region is settled with a very unambiguous goal, and that is to remove indigenous populations and to plant heterosexual white 
middle class, sexually reproductive communities on that land. Los Angeles is particularly invested in this fantasy of the white settler West. Los Angeles does not have a natural port. Los Angeles didn't necessarily have a early industry. And it's this fantasy that drives the rise of the city. And it's the acquisition of the extraordinarily brutal and violent acquisition of native land and then the very cheap selling off of that land to settlers. That is the principal mode of community and town development, certainly through the early mid 20th century, explicitly so. And it's this fantasy that I argue throughout City of Inmates that really drives a lot of the policing and incarceration trends in the city. That at first, it's indigenous peoples who constitute a block to the, the settler fantasy here in Los Angeles. So they are criminalized and caged up. Next come the rising number of poor white itinerant workers. They constitute their own kind of threat to the settler city. And so they are criminalized and locked up. By the 1870s, 1880s, it's Chinese immigrants who have been immigrating to the American West who now constitute the new racial threat to the white settler West. And so they are targeted for criminalization, but also for this new thing called deportation, which was invented to round up and remove Chinese immigrants from the American West. And the story goes on from there. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listeners' support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. Your story then turns to Chinese exclusion, registration, and deportation, which I think is really one of the most important but least remembered episodes in U.S. history. Can you explain what happened nationally and in L.A. in particular and how this fits into the story of human caging that you tell? First comes Chinese exclusion and then the Geary Act, which was aimed at incarceration and deportation. When I started researching for this book, I knew that I was going to have to grapple with the rise of immigrant detention in one way or another. I just didn't know how I was going to find the story or what the story would be. And in fact, it's when I was conducting newspaper research for the chapter I wrote on so-called tramps and hobos, the chapter Hobos in Heaven, that I kept running across this name of a man who was incarcerated in the Los Angeles County Jail in the 1890s. His name was Wong Dep Ken. And what had happened was Ken had failed to register with the federal government after the passage of the 1892 Geary Act, which required all Chinese laborers in the United States to get a certificate of residency or face up to one year in prison and then deportation. And the certificate, just a quick side note, was to prove that they had been in the U.S. from before the time the Chinese Exclusion Act, from from whence the point that they would have been barred from entering for the first time. Yes, that is correct. The 1892 Act is the extension of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So... Ken fails to get this certificate of residency and becomes a undocumented immigrant. And he is arrested 
in downtown Los Angeles and held in the Los Angeles County Jail during his trial, his proceedings. And there's lots of local news coverage on his arrest and his incarceration. And when a judge determines that Ken is unlawfully in the United States and therefore subject to deportation, Ken is removed from the LA County Jail, taken up to San Francisco, housed in the San Francisco jail for, I believe it's about seven or eight days, and then put on a ship and sent back across the Pacific Ocean as California's very first deportee. Now, when I found this story that was about deportation, but also about the many days, weeks, and months, in fact, that Ken was spending in the local county jails in Los Angeles and San Francisco, I knew that I had a story that was at the intersection of deportation and incarceration or human caging. So I went digging a little bit deeper to find the broader story that led to Ken's deportation. And what that broader story is, is that beginning at the moment of the California gold rush, when so many white settlers, white miners from the eastern United States rushed into California, along with immigrants from the world over, there was extraordinary resistance to Chinese immigrants um, mining in California. And so, of course, you have the passage of the foreign, foreign miners tax and other discriminatory forms of legislation that are really targeted to remove Chinese workers from the mines and from California more largely. It is this anti-Chinese moment and movement that eventually leads to the passage of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which is to um, exclude Chinese workers from entering the United States, later the 1892 Geary Act. But by 1892, Chinese immigrants in the United States were considerably organized socially and politically, and they launched a mass civil disobedience campaign against the 1892 Geary Act. And what that civil disobedience campaign looks like is that rather than showing up at a federal office and applying for a certificate of residency, they go to U.S. Marshal's offices with lawyers in tow and admit to being undocumented or unregistered within the United States. And they challenge the Geary Act, refusing to be targeted, locked up, or kicked out of the country. And it's this mass civil disobedience campaign that leads to a series of U.S. Supreme Court rulings in 1893 and later in 1896 um, that define our past and present immigration regime, that one, deportation is not a punishment for crime and therefore it's an administrative procedure to which the Bill of Rights does not apply. And two, um, that being unlawfully present in the United States is also not a crime. And that because we have defined deportation immigration control as something separate from the US criminal justice system, again, the constitution does not apply, and even the mechanisms of human detention that are inevitable between apprehension and deportation, that also the U.S. Constitution does not apply to. So we've created a regime of being able to criminalize police, arrest, detain, and deport people within the United States to which our Constitution does not apply. And that was the story I was able to find through um, the history of Wong Dep Ken and his time of detention in the Los Angeles County Jail. This is so critical because this is today with this system of of crimmigration that is such a major part of the repressive apparatus of the U.S. state in place. That that this story you're telling is really when the relationship between incarceration and immigration enforcement begins. And there's this, I just want to underline this twisted irony that you lay out, which is that the the Supreme, the Supreme Court both said it, you can't incarcerate someone as punishment for being here without authorization, which 
was something that curtailed part of the Geary Act. But at the same time, they also said that deportation itself and incarcerating someone pending deportation is not punishment for a crime. That banishment is not punishment for a crime. And thus that normal due process safeguards don't apply. And that's so critical to understanding how we ended up in the situation that we're in right now. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the conditions of immigrant detention um, and who can be detained and for what reasons for how long, all of that goes back to the set of decisions that were made by the United States Supreme Court during the 1890s amid this extraordinary anti-Chinese movement. All of those decisions are steeped in anti-Chinese racism. And they continue to be the precedent of our immigration regime. Now, we have softened some of the edges of immigrant detention in recent years. For example, there's now um, a six-month limit on how long someone can be detained without a hearing. But the same fundamental principle that was laid out by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1890s remains at play. And so if we want to really get serious of thinking about transforming and reforming our immigration control system, we're going to have to start thinking about returning to the 1890s and uprooting some of the decisions that we made about what deportation is and when it's allowable, who it can target, and what kind of authority the federal government has um, in the realm of immigration control. Now, I just want to add really quick here for those people who will never be able to read the book, there is one really interesting fact point here, that on the same day the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in a case called Wong Wing, which invented immigrant detention, it's on that very same day that the U.S. Supreme Court also invents Jim Crow. Uh, it's the same day that the U.S. Supreme Court issues its ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson. So the histories of race and exclusion that track back to May of 1896 are unending in multiple ways, right? Of course, we are still grappling with the afterlife of slavery and Jim Crow here in the United States. And in many ways, we do that through our carceral regime. We are also very much grappling with um, the system of immigration control, which is deeply racialized from its origin point um, in our contemporary moment. I read a law review article, I believe it was recently, that was talking about Trump's Justice Department their defense of the Muslim bans mm. in 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 court and how there was this incredible silence in the in their argument. They they failed to cite the eighteen eighty nine Supreme Court decision that was arguably their most favorable precedent in terms of the president having this absolute power to do whatever he wants with immigration. And that's uh Chai Chan Ping versus the United States, which ruled that the the government can basically has incontestable power to exclude who it wants if it considers, quote, the presence of foreigners of a different race in this country who will not assimilate with us to be dangerous to its peace and security. And I find it remarkable that that went uncited by Trump's Justice Department because it's it's a powerful legal precedent precedent in their in their favor. But it's just when you're trying to pretend a Muslim ban is not a racist, Islamophobic Muslim ban, it's 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 not good to cite uh, or helpful to cite such a brazenly racist Supreme Court precedent, I, I guess. Well, yeah, the Trump administration has tried to leverage um, absolute executive authority over immigration control without having to acknowledge the baggage of how that came to be. Um, and it's precisely as you say, by asserting executive authority without having to lay claim publicly to the systems of white supremacy and settler colonialism that made the rendering of those kinds of decisions that made targeted populations extraordinarily vulnerable possible. The story that you tell about the criminalization of immigration, the, ne- the the next thing that you look at is the criminalization of 
illegal entry and reentry into the country. And the fact that it results in a incarceration boom that I was entirely unaware of. Can you say a little bit about how illegal entry and re-entry emerged as crimes and what function the prosecution serve? That it somehow worked for both nativists, who were extremely powerful in the teens and 20s and successfully got the National Origins Quotas Act passed, and they wanted Mexicans out, but there were also very powerful agribusiness growers who wanted them as a subjugated workforce. How did illegal reentry and entry prosecutions function, and, and how did they lead to a boom in the federal prison population? Well, I, I lead into this chapter about the criminalization of unmonitored border crossings, actually through another chapter on the Mexican Revolution, which in in many ways is about documenting how incarcerated persons have continued to um, participate in, and in fact, even lead human rights and um, social justice movements. But it's also about the moment when Mexican immigration to the United States begins to spike around the Mexican Revolution. And I lead into this chapter about the criminalization of unmonitored entry by thinking about who Mexican immigrants were in the United States during the 1920s, that they were recruited to the United States as workers, but unwanted as humans and as citizens. And so there's a series of proposals during the 1920s to the United States Congress to try to figure out how to extract labor from Mexican workers without having to incorporate them as people, as families, as citizens within the social um, body of the United States. And there are a series of debates in Congress throughout the 1920s over precisely this issue. And as this debate heats up in the late 1920s, it's a senator from South Carolina, Senator Coleman Livingston Bleese, who comes up with a, a compromise between employers who want to get labor from Mexican workers and ethno-racial nativists who want to see Mexicans categorically barred from entering the United States. And this Senator Belize comes up with the idea, well, how about we just make sure to route all Mexican immigrants through an official port of entry, and at that port of entry, we can turn it on and off at will. When we need workers, we'll turn it on, and they can come on through. When we don't, we'll turn it off. So this notion that Mexican labor migration can be fully controlled um, was what he was, was going for. So what Belize does in 1929 is he recommends criminalizing unmonitored entry into the United States. And this is explicitly about controlling Mexican uh, border crossings into the United States and making sure they route through those ports of entry. And this is the moment you have a major transition between the anti-Chinese era of the 1890s, where the U.S. Supreme Court rules that being unregistered in the United States is, is not a crime, that Belize says, well, we're not going to deal with that issue being unregistered within the United States. We're going to talk about crossing the border without authorization. And a first-time border crossing without authorization becomes a federal misdemeanor, and an unauthorized border crossing after deportation becomes a felony in 1929. And it triggers an immediate boom of policing and incarceration across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Now, I've been studying immigration control for almost 20 years, and I had never heard of or knew of the three prisons that were established during the 1930s just to incarcerate Mexico for breaking Belize's law, for entering the United States without authorization. But there are there's a prison established just outside of El Paso called La Tuna, a convict labor camp established just outside of Tucson called Tucson Prison Camp Number 10. And then there is a federal facility established in Los Angeles County, Terminal Island. And all of those were to lock up Mexican immigrants who broke Belize's law during the 1930s. I, I had never heard of those three prisons either. And it's a remarkable story. And I want to underline the 
political context of the immigration debate in the 20s for listeners who don't know as well, there's these these national origins quota acts are passed in throughout the 20s, a few of them, and their purpose is to not only expand and extend Asian exclusion, but to radically restrict the immigration, the entry of disfavored Southern and Eastern European whites, including many Catholics and Jews. And in retrospect, it's remarkable that there's still, during this high tide of, of nativist politics, no formal restriction on the entry from the Western Hemisphere, given that there's plenty of racist sentiment against Mexicans. And I think what, what this chapter really shows is that that racist sentiment was channeled into this criminalization of illegal entry and illegal reentry, which led to a not only an incar- not only led to an incarceration boom at the time, but in recent years has become one of the most common charges filed in federal courts and a major driver of mass incarceration at the federal level. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, of course, there's no singular racism. And what you're seeing in the 1920s is the multiple forms that it's taking. And business people who are advocating for more Mexican immigrants to come to the United States um, are also saying that they do not want Mexican immigrants to become U.S. citizens. So an open border is not necessarily an an open heart, (laughs) right? And they have very (laughs) different politics about all of this. Um, So I want to be very, very, very clear about that. But this compromise that they came to in 1929 is absolutely the foundation of our contemporary moment of mass incarceration in the federal prison system. As you have said, um, prosecutions for unlawful entry and reentry are now the leading cause of um, conviction and incarceration within the federal penal system. This is a body of law that was given to us during the very tribal 1920s. And what I mean by tribal years, I mean white supremacist 1920s that has gone largely unedited and unrevised since 1929. So we are living and we are enforcing Belize's law disproportionately, of course, at the U.S.-Mexico border. And today it's both Mexican immigrants and Central American immigrants who are caught in its vice. And those charges began to rise so much in recent years, not not under first under Trump, but under George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. Right. There are now cases in which you can 20 years in federal prison for unlawful entry into the United States. Utterly outrageous. Um, I wanted to circle back briefly to the chapter that you mentioned, which precedes the one on illegal entry and reentry, which is on the Magonistas, who were in essence a cross-border left-wing revolutionary movement that used the U.S.-Mexican community as a safe harbor to try to overthrow the Mexican dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. Uh, But the Diaz government and the government on the U.S. side ultimately worked together to incarcerate the leader of that movement. Can you lay out in brief what happened and how it fits into this broader history? I think one key takeaway for me is that we can't limit our analysis of the American carceral state to the confines of the U.S. nation state's borders. Yeah, that's definitely one of the takeaways. Um, another one of the takeaways is that this is one of those historical examples where we have extraordinary um, evidence from people who are incarcerated as being leading members of a social movement. So that's also something I wanted to hammer home. You don't always get that kind of evidence. We literally have all of the or many of the letters that they smuggled in and out of jail that have been saved in Mexican archives. Um, so it really gives voice to the history of the incarcerated as political leaders. Um, This is also a chapter which talks about the raw politics of incarceration, that here you have 
a case of a cross-border, as you say, left-wing radical cohort that is advocating for massive redistribution of land and labor rights for workers. This is a threat, certainly, to capital and governance in Mexico during the early 20th century, but it is also a threat to capital and governance in the United States that one, had invested heavily in Mexico, but two, if a revolution were to occur in Mexico um, that challenges the basic precepts of white supremacy and capitalism, what would that mean for the United States? So the United States, um, in general, works very closely with the dictator of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, to hunt down and lock up these Mexican rebels in the United States, most of them who had set up headquarters in the U.S.-Mexico border region, and Los Angeles was a hotbed of Magonistas activity. So this chapter tells the story of the hunt between or of U.S. and Mexican authorities tracking Magonistas across the United States from Laredo to San Antonio to St. Louis, even up into Canada, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and finally capturing the rebellion's leaders in Los Angeles and having them incarcerated there for about a year and a half and then transferred to a state prison in Arizona. Now, the way historians have usually told this tale is that once the revolution's leaders are locked up and put in jail, that the revolution dies off. Well, in fact, what I found by looking closely at the archival record is that their period of incarceration is one of the most generative moments in the Magonistas movement, and that incarceration had the opposite effect on the movement. It actually reinvigorated it and helped to prod along the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution of 1910. I sometime need to do an entire episode on the Magonistas. We don't have time right now, but um, there's so much there. The, the next group of migrants that policing and incarceration in L.A. is used are used to control are black Angelinos who arrived in growing numbers at the turn of the 20th century from mostly from the U.S. South. A, a lot of the story that you tell is about how the vice district was effectively zoned into the black neighborhood and so as a matter of policy, Black L.A. was both the center of law breaking and of lawless law enforcement. Police are simultaneously repressive of black people and complicit in the criminal enterprises which are design by design flourishing in black neighborhoods. There's a lot in this chapter. One thing that I think it offers is a close look at how policing and segregation were used to manage and exploit the Great Migration. This is a very important story. And it is about the ways in which vice was concentrated in Black LA, what we now know as South Central Los Angeles, which was a highly segregated, intentionally segregated region. But it's also about, again, it's about this fantasy of the settler city, that out in the suburbs you have single family homes, heterosexual white families, and it's all law and order out there. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> you said I could curse. <laughs> that's bull. There's all kinds of prostitution <laughs> and gambling and vice and everything happening in the suburbs. It's the fantasy that allows the white settler elites to construct this narrative that lawlessness is only happening in South LA where they have legislated vice to occur. But the fact is, on the ground, that that kind of activity is happening everywhere. So I, I try to hammer home the story that is much similar to we, we have lots of documentation today that drug use rates are comparable across community. But what's not comparable is which communities get policed for drug usage. This is very much the same story that's happening during the 1920s and 1930s in Los Angeles. And in this case, it is the policing, again, on public order charges that poorly sheltered and underemployed African-Americans in the city are vulnerable to um, with the scores of 
lawless policemen that are assigned to work in South Central. And so this chapter revolves around those stories of vice policing, but really it's anchored by the first recorded killing of a young black male by the LAPD, which was an incident that happened in April of 1927 in a home in South Central Los Angeles that two police officers had come to to um, to police liquor in particular, liquor possession and trade. So this chapter is anchored by this murder of a young man named Sam Faulkner. And it's also anchored by the extraordinary protest movement that followed his killing. That black LA, doctors, physicians, workers, unemployed, come together to put an end to aggressive policing in South Central. They force the district attorney to file charges against the police officers who killed this young man. That is unsuccessful. The police officers are acquitted. After the acquittal, they continue to organize around every incident of police brutality when a young boy is murdered for participating in a gambling um, session on the street, when women are beaten by police, when veterans um, have their eyes ripped out by police officers. Around all of these incidents, the local black community organizes um, to protect black life and to improve the conditions of black life in South Central. In each of these incidents, and in response to mobilizations in Black LA, the local authorities and elite do nothing. What they do do is diversify the police force a bit by hiring more African Americans, but in terms of the everyday practices of police violence in the city, nothing changes. By the late 1930s, a local lawyer is saying that there will be bloodshed in the streets if the conditions don't change in South Central. The conditions do not change, and in fact, they become exacerbated during the 1940s and 1950s as more African Americans move into the city. And by 1965, you have the explosion of the Watts uprising, the Watts rebellion. So this chapter really is the long history of the Watts uprising of 1965 on the issues and grounds of police brutality in particular. Lastly, I want to turn to the larger themes and concepts that you're working with, whether it's about removing and exploiting indigenous people or deporting Chinese people, harassing and seeking to expel white hobos, or containing a cross-border rebellion or segregating and incarcerating black people, the thread that I see moving through this even that's even more broad conceptually, I think, than caging is just controlling move people's movement and location. And that seems really centrally to be what settler colonialism is all about. Is, is that right? I think you got it. So the opening line of this book is mass incarceration is mass elimination. And what I'm documenting over the course of 200 years of history in Los Angeles is that the policing and carceral regimes have been utilized to eliminate, purge, relocate, dislocate, or otherwise um, disappear a variety of communities in a variety of ways over time. Right now in the city, we're very much locked in several battles, but one of those battles is located and headquartered in Skid Row. Um, as downtown Los Angeles expands and gentrification accelerates, the houseless community and precariously housed community of Skid Row is extraordinarily vulnerable to being pushed out, removed, and eliminated from downtown Los Angeles. So this is very much a story that is ongoing. It begins with <clears throat> the criminalization and caging up and removal of indigenous communities, Tongva, Gabrielino communities in particular. And it moves through a variety of communities over time. And it helps us to understand what dynamics are at play um, in Los Angeles. And I would say in many other cities and rural areas across this settler state.
the settler nation today. Kelly Lytle Hernandez, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it and I enjoyed the conversation. Kelly Lytle Hernandez is a professor of history at UCLA. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once prophesied, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, which is great. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends. So thank you. Last but not least, please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. We can't do it without you. <laughs>